I, I've always liked the idea of adding to the landfill of stories. Like, I grew up watching a lot of anime, reading a lot of manga, uh, comics, and I really liked the idea of creating something that is, uh, or that covers my section of the world, or it's just something that I can take and add to all of these pieces of work that I've consumed. And I've chosen different formats to do so. Uh, and I think each one of these formats, I have a particular reason for choosing. So with comics, I use them if um, I, I'm writing a story that's a little more participatory, where I want my reader to kind of join in on the action. Um, and Scott McLeod has this thing, uh, it's called uh, Blood in the Gutters. And um, what he mentions is that uh, if you have, say, two panels here, in, in one panel you have an axe murderer holding up an axe uh, and he's about to kind of bring it down on his suspect and uh, his victim. And in the second panel, if you have said victim screaming, uh, you are every bit as complicit in this murder because the action doesn't happen in panel A or B, but rather in the middle. And what you do as a reader is that you imagine the axe being swing, swung and you imagine the striking action. So the murder basically happens right there and there's blood in the gutters and your hands are also bloody. Uh, I really like this participatory aspect to comics because when I write a story um, that, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a joke or there's a cliffhanger or there's something that where I want my audience to to kind of bring in their own experience and interpret a particular scene that may not necessarily be exactly what it means to me. Um, in in such a case, I would want them. I, I would use the comic format because I, I I really like the idea of here's a piece of work. Uh, this is what it means to me, but I'm not going to come out and explicitly say it. And you as the reader can kind of partake in this and take your own um, uh, interpretation of, of what this is. And, you know, you basically become the third uh, owner of the story with us, which is why uh, in our bio, uh, in, Mightly, in the Mightly and the Minotaur books, we have like uh, the author bio, the illustrator bio, and then there is a you bio where you kind of just fill in your own details. And that's essentially what comics are to me, where it's just this communal activity where we are inviting you, the reader, to come and partake with us. Uh, with prose, it's again a little different because um, here I'm writing a story and uh, I'm not too guarded about what uh, the level of participation is going to be, or I'm not too guarded about um, the many aspects of it. In which case, like when you read uh, a story like, like, did you know Hermione is supposed to be black, for example? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like you you, you read this, this story and then uh, you picture a white girl as all of us. I, I don't know if I'm making this up, so please fact check me on this, but keep it in, but do keep it in. Uh, so, you know, like, like, and, and, and the, the, the locations and because when I write about a school, I am 
very much thinking about an Indian school. And, and I am going to be describing the benches and I'm going to be describing different aspects. But if as a writer, I forget to, you know, expand into uh, the visuals of it and provide you enough visuals and detailing about it, and you are, you know, from some other part of the world, you're going to be imagining what a school means to you. Uh, so prose to me is something where it's, uh, there are stories where I'm not too guarded about it and, and, and film slash plays are ones where I'm very guarded about it and comics are that beautiful, sweet middle spot where you can either go here, there, or bring in a, a whole new interactive um, side to it. Hey everyone, welcome to the Closet Writer Chronicles. I'm your host Sangeeta, aka The Moody Marshmallow. You just heard our guest for today, Andrew Prashant, better known as CG Salamander. Andrew is a writer, comic journalist, and editor. He has written books like the Methley and the Minotaur series, Nisha Small, Moo Done It, and more. He is currently based in the Netherlands as a commissioning editor for Springer Nature Group and has previously worked with Pratham Books, Pearson, and the Jellyfish Monthly. Before all this, he studied engineering and worked as a tour guide. Tune in to hear Andrew talk about how he found his calling in writing, his journey towards a fulfilling career in publishing, and more. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Closet Writer Chronicles. This week, I have with me Andrew Prashant, better known as CG Salamander. Welcome to the show. Okay, one of the first things I read while researching about you is that you are a fan of manga, Terry Pratchett and cows. Before we get into anything else, kindly explain this one line, Andrew. Uh, Yeah, so manga, cows and Terry Pratchett. Uh, I think... The Discworld books were books that I read um, growing up, and I weirdly found them in uh, these secondhand bookstores. And they were kind of just super ubiquitous and all over the place. And um, it's the same thing with manga as well as these larger fantasy series, because they have these huge, big universes and worlds. Uh, and I love the world building and I love um, the characters and, and how, you know, just different arcs kind of play out and feed into each other. And ultimately you have this one big piece of um, work. So, uh, yeah, that's my uh, love for manga and Terry Pratchett. Uh, and cows, I find them super calming to just look at them, okay. chase after them <laughs> in a non-threatening way, of course. Okay, because, you know, that was one of the first things I read and I was just like, okay, uh, this is an interesting sort of spectrum of things to be interested in. So, you know, I was just curious. But, you know, speaking of manga, um, I I don't know if I can say I read a lot of manga, but it was something that I did have a lot of interest in when I was in school. Um, So watch a lot of anime as well. Um, So, yeah, so it's really cool to know that you kind of have interest in that space as well. Um, but, you know, having said that, what were the kinds of, say, content that influenced you while growing up, you know, in terms of, you know, writing uh, books, films, music, you know, who really influenced you or impacted you? Uh, sure thing. 
Uh, and the way you said, I used to be interested in manga. I still am. School. I don't know if yeah. I'm like. Oh, it, like it I... made it seem like oh, you need to grow up. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, but yeah, that's a really lovely question, and I think uh, we're gonna kind of visit a part of nineties uh, or early two thousand history to kind of answer this. So, my influences primarily come from. Um, from books, movies, TV shows, and a lot of anime. And with books, it's it's fairly simple. Um, I, I read a lot of Goosebumps because mm. uh, it's the only book that my school would have that was interesting in the library. Uh, so we have library periods. I don't know if this is still a thing where you crowd into the library and then you, know, you just read for half an hour um, and it's sort of forced reading. And it was always fun to kind of read this Goosebump book and then go back to it and try and finish it or try and get to get through as much of it as possible um but here's the history lesson bit uh for anyone who remembers i think somewhere in the early 2000s or i don't know if it's the mid 2000s we used to have cable tv yeah (laughs) and this sort of just disappeared and then there was a transition to the set-top box uh and i think there was a two-year period where i was deprived of content so I used to watch a lot of Cartoon Network and, and Nickelodeon back then. But oh, then, same. you know, yeah. So once this shift happened, uh, I suddenly found that, you know, Animax was the was the only watchable uh, free television um, channel. And then I just started watching a whole lot of anime. And, uh, and just to give our listeners a bit of context, um, a lot of animes are super huge and super colossal and, and they sometimes have prime time spots in Japanese television and there are huge teams working on them and they're more or less uh, like the Tamil serials that um, we watch here. So I ended up watching a lot of that and when I was sort of, I mean, you need to watch a, a different variety of programs throughout the day. And so somehow at around 8.30, I would watch uh, KTV because okay. you would have like a lot of Tamil movies played there and really old, bizarre movies from the 80s and 90s. And I watched every single one of them just because I didn't have access to my cartoons anymore. And, and so I think at a very impressionable age when I was a teenager, uh, I was just bombarded with a whole lot of Tamil cinema and anime and uh, I think all of this along with books has culminated into my uh, you know uh, references or, or things that went into shape my way of thinking. So what kinds of um, anime did you watch? Because I used to watch Animax in school. I think it was like one huge rage when it came out. I used to watch a lot of Inuyasha. Uh, Full Metal Alchemist, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Wait, wait a second. Uh, I thought you were like 21 or 22 or something. It's it's weird that you are... I'm 29, but I will take that as a compliment. (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, because like, yeah, that that makes sense, I guess. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) also a lot of Inuyasha. We are exposing my uh, age on this podcast, but okay now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I honestly thought like, this is here's some Gen Z person and I must inform them about this phenomenon when we made a, a shift from from illegal cable operation to top boxes. 
but sorry, I think I, I lost track. Uh, yes, Inuyasha and Cardcaptor Sakura. Oh, I and, love that show, uh, yeah. There was also this thing about a cat that I would watch after school, uh, Kiro or something like that. It was a black cat and it was a cyborg. Oh. It was something the cyborg cat. Yeah, so when I say I watched Animax, I practically lived on Animax. So um, it was a lot of weird shows. Detective School Kyo. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I love Detective School Loved Kyo. that show. I read the manga. Yeah. So good. Oh my yeah, God. and the reveals and, and you know, when class Q is actually the smart class and yeah. goodness, yeah, it's all coming back. And it was yeah. also something else that I just thought of um, as an anime, but I can't quite Death Note? remember. Because that's like the other Yeah, classic. Death Note is also really good. But I'm trying to think of the more obscure, weird ones, like Ranma Half. Oh my God. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually trying to scrape, you know, like the middle One Piece, barrel anime. the never-ending show. Yeah, but One Piece, I'm I'm very attached to. So I I think it's it's the it's best. It's still going uh, on. It is, yes. <laughs> I gave up like after a point. <laughs> oh no, it's getting way. It's getting very very interesting, and and it's getting much much better. So yeah. So interestingly, there was another uh, another guest I had on season one, Sahil Bhargav, who is uh, a musician and an anime animation producer, and we had a really long conversation about manga and anime, and we went on for like half an hour about it. So I know we can go on about it here yeah. as well, uh, but kind of you know uh, moving on. Um, the other thing I want to ask you is. You know, you obviously you've grown up with so much of content, and animation has been a sort of huge influence, right? Even in terms of the work you're currently doing and the kind of stories you're doing. But what is your earliest memory of really being, you know, creative? And when did you start writing? I can, this is this sounds like uh, I can give you an answer that's a cop out because, as far as I know, when you're a child, you just write stories. Like regardless of if you want to be creative or not, you just end up writing stories. And I, I have memories where um, I kind of tried to rewrite certain Cartoon Network shows like Tom and Jerry, for example. Okay. Uh, but I wasn't a very good writer then because it would all end with Tom catching and devouring or dismembering Jerry. But of course, you can't keep the franchise alive when one half of your show is killed off. Um, but yeah, it was just like weird stories about... You know, th- there's a problem in the ocean, and um, and uh, all the fishes are upset, and because there's a shark bullying them, and then all the fish decide to go and grab a whale to protect them. Uh, yeah, so the the reason this sounds um, like like it's a story that I actually worked on was because it literally was a story that I wrote. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just these weird fragmented memories of me being a child writing in a rough notebook uh, and then just kind of either showing it to friends or showing it to my parents at the time. Uh, But yeah, that's my earliest memory of being um, creative, I guess. Okay. And when did you like really start writing? Uh, I think when I was about 21 is when I started properly writing or when I was 20 or 19. Okay. Um, but it, it took a while for me to take the absolute plunge. Um, and I think that happened when I was 23 or something, mm-hmm. uh, because I just read, um, I think one of George Orwell's essays and, and he started out around the same time. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Didn't lose way too much time because up until then the plan was, I will start writing when I was 42 okay. because that seemed like 
I don't know, back at the time, it seemed like an appropriate age to start writing. But uh, I'm glad that I had a, a, a head start, actually. Mm. Okay, that's cool. So, okay, if I have to look at your career trajectory, because I know you studied engineering, and it's funny because I've had other engineers on this show who are doing completely different things as well now. So you started with engineering, you became a tour guide with Story Trails, and then, of course, got into publishing. Take us through the engineering and tour guide part of it, because I'm curious to know how that transition happened and why those specific decisions happened. Oh, uh, sure thing. So engineering is fairly simple. It's just, you know, you, you're an Indian kid, uh, you're a 90s kid, and your parents have three options put in front <laughs> of them. It's doctor, lawyer, not even lawyer. I don't know why people say lawyer. Parents don't want their kids to be lawyers. They want you to be engineers or doctors, maybe a chartered accountant. Uh, so here are your three options. And uh, I inevitably found myself down the engineering route because this is what everyone was doing. Uh, so I think as a teenager, I didn't have a good sense of what I wanted in life. Okay. And so I said, okay, engineering sounds cool. It sounds uh, like I learned how to build machines and stuff, which is not what it turned out to be. Um, so I said, okay, let's go do my engineering. And then I studied in Allahabad okay. for four years. Um, now Prayagraj, actually. Um, but yeah, so I stayed there for four years and it was a completely different uh, shift. And, and, and I think right from like the first month there, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. It's um, okay. not what I meant to do. But, you know, somehow scraped through and then uh, stuck it out for four years, graduated. And then I came back home and then I was supposed to uh, start looking for jobs. And uh, I think I, I, I would actually um, tell my parents that I was going to find work, but then spend my time in parks, just loitering, sitting around uh, and, uh, you know, just attending the, those one or two interviews and, and seeing if yeah, but, but I, I didn't take it too seriously. And I think at a point I realized that there was other ways to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really wanted to be become a writer. So I told myself that, uh, okay, I can become a writer, but I need this money basically. So um, let me become a tour guide to sort of pay for my uh, bills at the time. And uh, Story tra Trails seemed like the perfect place uh, to join. So yeah that's uh my trajectory so the the tour guide bit was um just so that i could make ends meet and i told myself that if i make as much money writing as i did with being a tour guide then i'd make a soft trans transition out of it and that's what actually eventually happened so it was b basically just financially motivated but did you have fun being a tour guide? Yes, tons of fun. It was super fun, actually. Uh, so I, I had, uh, I was on the Bazaar Trail, so okay. we would, yeah, so this was uh, Blacktown, which is right off NSE Bose Road, if anyone knows. Uh, and we would kind of take all these foreigners into the busiest, most uh, chaotic streets of Paris Corner. And uh, we'd show them things like vegetables and look, the British <laughs> named these things ladies' fingers and these things elephant's foot yams because that's what they resemble and that's what they look like. Um, and yeah, we just talk about the architecture of, you know, the Indo-Saracenic 
uh, High Court, um, and and then there was Armenian Street, which was my favorite part of the tour, okay. where you have um, this Armenian church uh, that's been in existence for a very long time, and it's like an oasis of silence and calm in mm. Paris Corner. So if you get the chance to visit the Armenian church, uh, I highly recommend you do so or the listeners as well yeah so, sure yeah. so fun fact i used to work in paris corner uh so i've actually never visited the church but i will now whenever i go back that side for sure uh but yeah it's an interesting part of town there's a lot of history there's a lot of architecture like you said and it's just very rich in culture and it's like its own sort of town or city in a way um but yeah so then do you think any of those experiences also kind of seeped into your writing in a sense? Because say, is there anything say from when you were a tour guide or engineering that you kind of take into your, your current writing? Yeah, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm also kind of curious about where you worked in Paris Corner. So I'm just going to visit this right after you answer this. Oh, uh, I used to work in shipping and logistics. I will oh, get wow. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, since that's the port side of town, it's kind of uh, a no-brainer why I was there, but yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah, shipping and logistics. Wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, back to your question. Um, I guess it has sort of seeped through. Um, There's this one book that I wrote called Frank's Trip to the Market, which is Mm. based off of, um, you know, the Kutlawal Chowdhury Market in uh, Paris Corner. And uh, yeah, so the plot is that this kid gets lost there and he has to find his way and get reunited with his mom, basically. So this is one of my earliest um, published pieces of writing, also children's book. Um, And... uh, I guess if you really kind of dig deep, you will find other semblances. Uh, like I, I know that there's a book that I'm uh, that is coming out this April or May with Hachette. Okay. Um, it's a it's a book on uh, on beasts and mythical creatures across India. Uh, so there's a hundred of them, and I tried to dig out the ones that we haven't really heard of. Um, for instance, I'm going off on a complete tangent here, so. Um, please do feel free to bring me back if I go too deep into this hole. So my favorite beast uh, from this book is the Asunam. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is this serpentile bird-like creature that is super huge and fierce and formidable. And uh, it's so big that it can actually lift a horse into the sky with its talons. Uh, and it lives somewhere in the Western Guards. Uh, so I think it lives near Kodekanal or something like that. And um, I think it's been referred to in Sangam literature. And uh, the reference is that these beasts love the sound of nature and they love the sound of music. And whenever they listen to something mel- melodious, they will come out of their caves and then they will dance to the sound of the music, which was also sort of their downfall because these birds were also phonophobic which means if they listen to loud noises, they would um, collapse and maybe even die. So old uh, ancient Tamil hunters would go off into the woods, uh, play the lyre to draw them out. And then, you know, once they're nice and happy and dancing to the tunes of the music, they would then play a loud beat of a drum, which would stun them and cause them to come crashing to the ground. 
and then they would uh, proceed to eat them. So um, yeah, so that's my favorite piece and it's my favorite story from uh, the Southern uh, region basically. And um, yeah, so the thought of an Osanum back in Paris, which is super <laughs> loud. Uh, yeah, it's just, I just tried to bring it back to <laughs> where we were full circle. So no, but it's interesting that you've kind of taken that kind of inspiration, right? Just from other work you've done and also just uh, sort of the life you've lived and places you've been geographically uh, as well. But and folklore is something I do want to come to later on. But before that, uh, how did you then decide to take the plunge into publishing? Because you said you did, you kind of knew you wanted to do writing professionally and get into this space. But then how did you really make that jump? I know uh, I read that you did self-publish your first book um, at 24, Palms Foster Home for Peculiar Stories, if that's yes. if I'm right about that. Um, so how did that plunge happen for you? Uh, so I think what happened was that I was around 23 and I was just writing stuff and uh, not getting it published per se. I think maybe a couple of short stories had been published, one with this anthology called Helter Skelter. Mm. It was in volume four. I think they're on volume eight or something now. Uh, and the second thing was um, some short story that got published along with uh, associated with a literature festival or something like that. Um, so yeah, so I was kind of just very impatient. I was my early twenties and I wanted to be published, published. So I said, okay, let me just kind of do it myself. Um, which was a super valuable experience because I got to know the business behind publishing. Mm. Uh, for instance, you, if you say, if you, if you print a book, uh, and it's priced at 200 rupees, Back at the time, Palms Foster Home was priced at 200, but I remember that cost the print and uh, the print cost for each of these books was just about 55 or 60 rupees, and you need to kind of price it higher because a fair chunk of your money goes into distribution. Okay. Around, yeah, and so when so publishing is is not a good business at all is something that I learned right off the bat because the the bottom line that you're left with is is very little and yeah. uh and and i mean i think even till this date there are a few copies of palms foster home just kind of there in my house in a, a on the loft just staring at me um because i remember the 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 break even point was like 300 books or something to be sold and then i had sold 400 and then after that i i kind of lost interest because it takes a lot of effort and time to sell these books yeah. uh, and make sure they're in libraries you need to go and visit like the few independent libraries that will keep your book and yeah it is a nasty horrible horribly boring business and um, yeah so but I am grateful that I knew all the steps that that it entailed mm -hmm. like the editorial process where I had a, a, a freelance editor take care of my work uh, and then there was the um, cover illustration so on and so forth and basically just all the way from conception to print um, but Palms Foster Home is something that I that I uh, am really fond of but those books are riddled with mistakes okay. uh, there are a lot of typos in there so 
yeah, uh, I, I, I right now will probably cringe at them because it was basically, it was almost a decade ago that mm. I that I wrote them and, and it's a completely different version of me. So uh, yeah, but nonetheless, I'm really proud of it in, 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 in some ways and I'm glad it exists. No, you should be, and because I'm sure that's that's like the start, right, of the journey in a way, and it's always that first step. So it's great that you did take that first step. But having said that, you self-published, which is interesting, because I think if you're in publishing, especially work in publishing, I think one of the sort of perceptions is that self-published work is usually not considered to be good. And no, no, I'm. It is not considered. It is. It isn't good. I can. Yeah. Like anyone who's thinking about self-publishing, uh, unless you know, one hundred percent what you're doing, I would yeah. discourage you from doing so. Don't do it. Uh, because there's self-publishing and then there's vanity publishing as well. Yeah. So this is where you have bigger or smaller mid-sizey companies that give you a package service. So they'll do all of these things for you, and then they'll publish your book for. X amount of rupees for X amount of copies. Uh, and the math does not add up because <laughs> when I when I start, when I wanted to publish my first book, uh, Palm Cities, I, I noticed that the prices that they were quoting were incredibly high. And all you need to do is just literally go and speak to any printer and they'll be like, oh, this book, yeah, okay, 50 bucks or 60 bucks to publish it. And I think the magnitude of, of difference was in the, in the, was in the lack, I think, because what would cost you 50000 to do would otherwise, at the time, had costed around 2.5 to 3 lakhs. So it was a huge markup. And they don't do as much, basically. They would just print it and then send it to the influencer network, um, which uh, isn't... Um, God, I'm going into like... I'm, I'm, going into these very bitter places now i'm just like <laughs> no that's God, fine we want to know please continue yeah. this is therapy yeah so got all these influences uh, yeah anyway but but uh yeah I, I i i just feel like um like as genuine as 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 it would be to to have an influencer kind of um talk about your book it doesn't translate to sales as much Mm. Um, and it's because I've been tracking this uh, last year quite obsessively. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And even a tweet or an Instagram post uh, from someone who has a million followers. And and over here, I'm not talking about an influencer, influencer but someone with a lot of credibility and, and sort of a big name with as many followers. So even when they do it, it it's a it's a dent. If, if someone with a million followers puts your book out on their platforms... And they do so, say, two times, then I guess uh, you would probably sell five copies. Wow, okay. Uh, that's, yeah. Unless, of course, it's like literally Shah Rukh Khan or someone saying, hey, buy this book, in which case you'll see a huge spike in sales <laughs> or Oprah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, there are different levels to it. So, yeah. But in general, influencer marketing doesn't really work. This is where we give a shout out to Shayana Bhattacharya's Desperately Seeking Shahrukh, a book which has really like gone off the charts, I think, when it came out. Um, but great book, though. Um, but no, the reason I wanted to ask is then, why did you take that decision to self-publish if you oh, were I was just aware? impatient. 
Okay. I was completely impatient. I just wanted to see my work in print. And uh, I think I did end up leveraging this book to get other book deals because okay. uh, uh, people were asking very few questions at the time. I think it was because self-publishing wasn't a thing. So Back they then? just thought, oh, yeah, it, it wasn't as... Um, it, it wasn't as common as it is today. So okay. I think I think you only had Poti who was doing this. You didn't okay. even have Notion Press back in the day. And I think yeah. Notion Press is the biggest player of self-published books right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was super impatient and I wanted to get it out. And it was, you know, a thing that I would show people at the time saying, hey, look, I have books, book. And <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it, it led to other opportunities for me. And uh, I think this is what led to me also getting my BLPS books, um, which for anyone who doesn't know was a publisher based uh, in Chennai. Uh, in uh, I think they were in RDR, so clearly the wrong side of Chennai, but nonetheless, they were based out of Chennai. Uh, and I had a set of four, four books with them and they did incredibly well, I think these books sold about like 10,000 to 6,000 copies each. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And uh, this kind of, and they also did send me places. They sent me to Delhi to like go to um, Kickstart or Jumpstart or something it was called. So it's basically this place where you would have um, all of the other children's literature people. And they also sent me to some other place where I, I just spoke to other children's literature people. And then, you know, uh, one thing leads to the other and, and you end up publishing children's books. So, hmm. yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah, so then that's that's the other part of it. You decide you want to be a writer. Um, you get self-published and of course you're getting other opportunities after that. But why children's literature considering usually that's not something a lot of people like get into organically um, usually when people are like oh I want to be a writer it's like the immediate thing is oh adult fiction or you know non-fiction or whatever why children's writing so it was never particularly children's writing at the start mm-hmm. uh, I think some of like the stories that I've written for adults or are published in magazines and or journals um, I, 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 I think they do exist it's a different side of my writing and mm-hmm. uh I think the the script I'm most proud of is a work for adults, um, and I'm, I'm I'm looking to place it at the moment. Uh, but it was very money led at the time, and this sounds very con- counterintuitive because there's no money in children's <laughs> publishing. Yeah, really I know. Don't. But you know, you're a tour guide, you're doing stuff, uh, and then you see this this one outlet or avenue uh, and also comics i was doing a lot of comics back then which was not necessarily for children actually it was not for children at all so i was doing journalistic comic pieces for the mint and a few other publications and this is what actually paid the bills because i remember back in the day you would get paid like thirty thousand rupees for a decently sized comic and this was 2013 or something so okay. it, it was you could make good decent money back in the day if you had you know like the right comic people approaching you and I mean the payment was horribly delayed but you know it was still money Mm. Uh, so yeah so uh, I 
think I ventured into comics a lot and then that sent me on a tangent and then also at the same time I uh, had gotten with the BLP with the BLPS people okay. uh, so uh, BLPS is Miss Moochie by the way um, okay. and that sent me off on another tangent and then I just ended up doing these two things and I would do a lot of comics and a lot of children's uh, content and at a point you just get approached for this kind of work. Um, so I think with comics, I have about a hundred plus published and with children's books, I think maybe uh, I, I don't know the number because I did a lot of commercial projects as well. Mm-hmm. So my stories are uh, that with Pearson uh, as part of their curriculum and also Oxford university press, etc. Speaking of which, they should—I uh, should remind them to pay me for my royalty because oh my god, I own the rights to those. And yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a lot of tracking and admin. People don't realize the amount of admin that goes into like doing something creative. That is so true. You need to chase people for stuff. It's yeah. The thing is, okay, you got into children's publishing then, kind of by chance, but. You did kind. You were involved with, say, like the Jellyfish magazine, where you were one of the founding members, right? And you were the managing editor, and then you were with Pratham as well. So then, did your perception at some point change for you to get so kind of heavily involved, in a sense, with children's literature? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the more I worked on it, the more I loved it, and uh, there was this weird sort of freedom with children's books, and you can be super silly it's actually encouraged to be silly with children's books and i absolutely love that uh and i think children's books were taking more risks and are still taking more risks at the time yeah. uh, because you don't have too much of a, a scanner on them um still and i guess it was the best outlet for me to express myself creatively and i started out with picture books and um also a few middle grade novels uh mm. And but I've always wanted to bring comics into the children's book space, and uh, so if if you notice, like some of my books with Pratham, like uh, the House of Cloud series, which is about a girl um, in in anyway, uh, I'm not going to go into the details of the book, or also Arun and Ruins, they're all sort of semi comic, semi um, picture book mm-hmm. pieces of work, so there's like a clear transition where, you know, you would see me going from proper picture books to trying to go for something hybrid and then just kind of transitioning to full comics as in Mike Lini and the Minotaur, so on. Uh, but coming back to Jellyfish, um, I uh, we at that time, uh, I did want to create, you know, uh, or recreate some of the magazines that we used to buy when we were in school and uh like tinkle no i think there was another one a more local one that was that, that had a, a run for like three years or something like that and stopped uh but it was a really fun magazine i can't even remember what it's called and maybe people will speak about jellyfish magazine exactly in in, in this way in, in say a couple of decades but um i our first year, we had around 1,400 subscribers. The second oh, year, wow. we went up to 4,000. And 
the third year we went up to 7500 so we were actually growing quite swiftly mm. and um again so our distribution system was completely in place because we would uh would deal only with schools and okay. so you know but again getting money from schools like pulling teeth so that's another issue uh but it was my time at jellyfish was a lot of fun because it was just a time of experimentation and uh, exploring all these things that i really wanted to do and and i now suddenly had a platform and a readership and uh, you would also receive letters from kids saying that they really like this and uh, this is this is how i i i found out that kids were really into mystery uh, not mystery sorry uh, who done it okay uh, which kind of takes us back to you know dan detective school q yeah because it exactly was that it was children solving these complicated uh, stories and um, and and i had a character called divya mystery that was a recurring feature of the magazine and 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 i have a new character now called nisha small uh who also solves uh mysteries but yeah with her friend Jamie Karthik uh so this is something that Rajiv and I co-created together uh so yeah I, I guess jellyfish really gave me the audience so i was absolutely able to gauge from them um what works and what doesn't work and then okay. when i moved on to pratham books uh i had a list uh, of books that i had to work on so i was given a set of stem titles so i and uh, ended up working on 30 books um and then across four languages so it was 30 plus 120 uh in total and um it was super fun working with the pratham people because um it 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 was a really fun environment uh, or at least for me it was like an incredibly fun environment where people were just coming in and sitting around and discussing stories mm. uh and that just it at one point it felt wrong to be paid to go in and discuss stories and okay. uh, and 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 they paid really well at the time as well so uh that's kind of so i i don't know if you noticed but but financial motivation or financial sustainability is a huge part of of anything that i've done so far because you can't do creative work if you don't have the money to do so um, that is true yeah because that's when you kind of either burn out or lose track or kind of or completely um abandon what it is that you're doing so uh even when rajiv and i speak to people and and they ask us for advice on what to do we tell them to uh to to uh prepare for the the IEEE or JE exams and or NEET exams and then write that <laughs> and become a doctor okay. I, i mean we're being facetious for for the most part but you know it it does you would need to have your finances in order if not it doesn't work no but it is good to have that perspective because i think a lot of people have this misconception right that oh if you are in a creative field it's all like roses and there's like nothing like hard about it and you're just having fun every day yeah so it's it's like a very 
60s picture of like hippies lounging about on in the grass on the beach and then yeah you know they're all kind of like coming up with work together but that's not the case at all it's just grueling administrative work and writing yeah. invoices and writing follow-up emails and um yeah i mean even with this podcast like you had to i i'm i'm pretty bad at at oh i was pretty bad at getting back so your admin uh sensibilities were on point so huge respect for that it's part of what i do for a living so i better <laughs> be good at this i mean this is what pays my bills at this point so yeah yeah um but yeah to give context to the audience which i already have um i work in rights in a children's publishing house so hence uh, the other thing i wanted to ask is What is the origin story of CG Salamander? Why did you come up with that name? The there's a smart answer and a dumb answer for this and uh people tell me to just stick with the smart answer because it it boosts perspectives of me but I tell people both the answers nonetheless. Uh the 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 dumb answer is because I think I was 22 23 and I said um you know what i'm going to write with a pen name and then one day i will write with my real name and and that will be a masterpiece it will be it will rock the world and and shake the very foundations of literature um so that was the idea and okay. cg salamander will be a standard name up until then um what i didn't realize was that uh, a pen name sticks to you and and it gets to the point where people don't know um your real name yeah so i've gone to like uh literature festivals or or when people invite me and at the airport you will see mr salamander or mr cg salamander or something like that oh, so wow. it it gets as ridiculous as that where it becomes your whole identity and i guess right now i it, i have two identities one cg salamander and one my own um and uh the reason i i chose this was because i was into a lot of anime and i think one of the characters was called salamander something i thought hey that's a cool oh. name to have okay so so that's the dumb answer but the smart answer is that um the scientific name of a chinese giant salamander happens to be andreas davidinus which is very close to my real name andrew okay. david you can say that his answer has been re- rehearsed But okay yeah. then. <laughs> no, because I was just wondering. I was like, "Oh, this is his pen name." What? And initially, I didn't realize. I was like, "Is this his real name?" And then when I was looking him up, I was like, "Oh no, that's not his real name." So I was just like wondering why you came up with C.G. Salamander. But okay then. Okay, you want to write as Andrew Prashant at some point, so that's not going to happen at all now. No, I think it will still happen. There are certain pieces of work that are deeply personal to me. Okay. Uh and I think those will have to be Andrew Prashant uh work so uh yeah because uh a a a small part of my family has Sri Lankan ties so okay. they are uh they were there during the um the exodus uh during the 80s and the riots and what not and it, it feels wrong to write that as CG Salamander mm. uh so yeah so I think works that are more personal um will be andrew books and cg salamander is i think the persona that writes children's books and comics and graphic novels uh, for adults as well but yeah okay uh but then okay having said that since you've had so many career shifts uh have how have you know family friends and people in general kind of 
perceived that or have they made any kind of i don't know comments or have there been misconceptions about what you do oh yeah all the time yes <laughs> uh my parents so that that's very easy to answer so uh so when i went to alaba i i studied in 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 nit uh so it was a a a moment of i mean it was a thing of pride for them because they were like oh okay they were basically living the 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 indian um dream where you have like these two kids and one of them is an engineer and when i decided that i didn't want to go down this route my parents very swiftly and very wisely said to themselves you know what let's focus on the other kid my sister uh who up until that point uh my sister is incredibly stubborn by the way uh i think she is more stubborn than i am and um i've been super stubborn about writing as well and it's i would say my best and my worst trait because uh when they would say hey uh are you sure you want to do this i would be like yes i am going to, to become a writer and i'm going to absolutely do this and this is what my life entails uh up and weirdly enough my sister wanted to become a doctor when she was young but literally my my parents just thought she was you know it's just something that kids say okay uh, yeah you know i want to become a doctor or a veterinarian um and my sister was so stubborn and so serious about it that at one point my parents knew that they had to pivot and focus on the other kid and they did focus on her uh and she's now a surgeon so good on them uh but you know uh what was the question again why did i take this weird tangent i don't know now even i forgot what the question was oh, oh no 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 it was it was family yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. so my parents had a, a a coping mechanism where you know it's like focus on the second child uh and uh, not so much on the first uh and then i just went around doing my thing uh and at one point uh i went into editorial work so uh hence the jellyfish and then the pratham books are a tangent basically and that kind of led to more and more and more editorial work because i also worked with pearson and uh, all the other indian publishers and uh at one point i decided hey let's try to do some editorial work abroad and uh eventually moved to the netherlands and now i i'm a commissioning editor with uh, springer so taking care of a portfolio of scientific journals yeah so, i know yeah yeah it's been really crazy and really mad but then i think uh leaving me to my own devices was the best thing that my parents and my family did uh because i there were a lot of people trying to talk me out of it saying mm. this is not uh, a good career path for the middle class and you know like you can't do this but uh and they they were absolutely right like oh my goodness like the if you ask me to go back and do exactly what i did again like in my 30s no way <laughs> I, i i would not do it all again but having done that i have absolutely no regrets Cue no but music <laughs> yeah uh, what are we i have the tiger gladiator i don't know but yeah, yeah no but something it, inspiring no but uh no the reason i asked that is because there was again another guest referencing um who i had suchin merotra who is an investment banker and then became a film journalist um so he was talking about like how when he made the shift he was like yeah my parents were just like 
no one got it like family and friends but he was like i knew that this is what i wanted to do so it's just interesting to kind of hear you know different stories about how you know people kind of go through these sort of shifts and because as it is i feel like you're internally dealing with that shift yourself uh in terms of questioning yourself like is this right is this wrong you know is this good for me and then you have like so much of external noise kind of also sort of questioning you which can be very conflicting and can just cause a lot more confusion so um it's just good to get perspectives on this so like the external noise was certainly there but i think i was just like a really dumb 20 year old i had no internal voice at all that was telling me okay. that you know this is why you're doing this that started popping up literally a year ago i think like when i turned 31 or something is is when it actually happened but i had zero internal voice so i was able to take a lot of risks mm. uh, and yeah so i i think i had like full clarity and even right now right like the internal voice is it's very muted like it it it's just there but it's so silent and you really have to make an effort to listen to it um but i i i i guess i kind of get what you mean like do other 20 year olds have you know like a voice telling them what are you doing like rethink your decisions i mean apparently it it is so for gen z and i guess a lot of i mean i'm almost 30 so i don't really like, know if i really come into this anymore but yeah yeah but when you were say 22 or something were you just like questioning Oh. I mean, when you were logistics and... Uh, yeah, I had an existential shipping. crisis, like a major one. I had an existential crisis even last year when I like got into publishing. But then after that, I was like, nope, this is the right thing for me to do. Okay. Talk to me again in five years. We'll see. I, I feel like I'm someone who will just have existential crisis at some point or the other. And I'm prepared for the next one, but I don't think it's going to happen for a while. But yeah. Fair because enough. Because but... I am an overthinker, but yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a no thinker. Uh, I I my girlfriend is an overthinker. So I think like it's it's good to pair them together and then just send them off into the world. But um, yeah, I I I just act for the most part. I don't do dumb things, uh, but I do dumb things uh, sometimes. Oh, who am I kidding? I I do a lot of dumb things. So uh, yeah, and. Sometimes it just helps to not evaluate what you're doing. It could te- it could end up horribly wrong. You could mm. become homeless, but you know, survivor survivorship bias is what it's called. Mm, yeah, I think yeah, taking calculated risks, chances. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. But yeah, coming back to um, your writing. So about folklore and mythology, since you do have. A sort of penchant for that I've realized of course there is Methley and the Minotaur um, even the story you did with Comic Sense Into the Woods and of course the book you're doing with Hachette now where has that interest kind of come from for you and why do you kind of want to explore that world in your writing? Uh, I think the reason I'm very invested and interested in this is because I have always liked fantasy and I've always liked large expansive worlds and world building and universes. Mm -hmm. And I feel that there's a lot that we have uh, in say India or South India that can go into making our own versions of these uh, worlds. In the start, 
I wanted to make a, a fantastical world that was free of goblins, werewolves, and vampires, and you know, like the the Anglo-centric uh, sense of what fantasy is, or or a Tolkienist universe. Um, but now I, I've realized that to do so would be to create something that is so um, far from you know what is perceived as fantasy that it would be taken as uh, something that that's more myth related. I I, I guess. What I'm trying to say is I, I wanted to bring these characters and bring all of these folkloric traditions and have them as um, blocks that I could use to build my world. Mm. And the Hachette book is um, basically came out as a result of me researching a bunch of these creatures and not finding a record of them. Uh, okay. And so I told, my, I told myself... Um, you know, I'm just going to make this a uh, creative non-fiction-y book which talks about all of these different creatures. And then, you know, I have myself like a small library and uh, sometimes Rajiv and I refer to, you know, this book or there's there's a spreadsheet of all these, cre- these creatures that we've created. And if you want to add like a new book uh, side character uh, or if you want to add something interesting then you know there's tons of creatures there's the indus worm which is uh this huge um this huge colossal worm that lives in in the riverbeds of the ganges and uh probably near Allahabad. and uh it's got these two large fangs that come like basically one on top and one at the bottom and you know uh and it's this creature that was uh it, it it's super fatty and uh this is actually sorry a, a bit of greek mythology or greek mythology set uh in in india so it's what okay. the greek historians talk about uh when they talk about india so according to them this beast existed in the gangetic plains it was uh, it had a fang at the, at the top a fang at the bottom and it was super fat rich that uh, if you would get the fat from these creatures and set it ablaze, it would burn for like, say, two or three years. And this was like a huge resource for the kings at the time or the Indian kings at the time, because um, having this would mean having a weapon that they could use to like invade other kingdoms. So they could just like set perpetual fire to their enemies. So I guess there was something super fascinating about cataloging all of these things and then having them there and then you know this can feed into a larger piece of narrative where you want somebody like say invading someplace and then you say okay so this oil that they used is from here and then there's an actual for historical record uh by the greeks uh which you can refer to so it just makes your mythical world building a lot more convincing mm. when you base it on these things. And I guess a book that I've read recently is, um, have you read Lincoln in the Bardo? No, I have not. Okay. It is a lovely, amazing book. And he use, he uses this, this um, I think it's just a George Sanders. I'm not sure, but he uses this um, super cool literary device 
where he discredits history to make his fiction seem more credible. Oh, and okay. Yeah. So how he does this is, for example, uh, at at the party, he talks about, uh, say, Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. and uh, how Abraham's Lincoln's eyes, right? And about how, like, someone said, uh, so he'd talk about Abraham Lincoln's eyes and towards the end, you'd have, like, all of these quotations from different newspapers or journals at the time one saying his eyes were blue and swollen another saying his eyes were hazel another saying his eyes were green so literally news reporters of the time were getting it wrong and conflicting say the color of his eyes or um it was a cloudy night the moon was bright and visible the the sky had no moon so by kind of juxtaposing this to you know his fiction he was able to sort of discredit reality and give his version of the truth his fiction more um weightage and i think it i'm i'm i i think what i'm doing here kind of equates to the same amount or will result in the same effect if i use these creatures bring it here and say this person pliny the elder has has mentioned that this particular creature lived here and mm-hmm. you know Sangam literature said this about this particular thing so yeah no but that's really cool and i'm honestly excited to read this book you are coming out with uh, with hashet uh, for sure i read methley and the minotaur and i loved both the books uh, i think it's an incredible series and yeah i i get the hype now that i've read it but yeah it's it's really cool to kind of see you doing this in a sort of Indian South Asian space where we haven't really seen very many characters in series like these um so yeah more power to you and of course Rajiv Vipe uh, who's i think worked with you on Methley and the Minotaur and a bunch of other books as well um so yeah excited yes. to see yeah we've uh, we are co-creators of Methley and anything that we create and it's absolutely fun because sometimes we just on a call discussing random shit like <laughs> yeah so so I, I guess this one time we were having a very serious discussion about the Minotaur mm-hmm. and the bulk of his neck and how he moves it. And then he was just very, 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 very bothered about, you know, like how will he button the collar button of his shirt? Okay. And he just had to have that uh, before he figures it out. And I think the answer was that a lot of it is full that kind of just goes on top. But yeah, I, I, I really like um the balance that we have because rajiv if you've known through his illustrations he brings in a sense of like nostalgia um mm. as well so there's like lunch boxes and uh and water bottles that we carry to school and yeah you know that's just kind of there and 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 it stays a constant even today so yep i'm meandering again <laughs> no no not at all but um No, it's just really cool to see the kind of work I think both of you are coming out with together and it's it's interesting that you've been able to find a collaborator like that, right? It's I mean those creative partnerships sometimes can be hard to come across. So it's it's really nice that you've kind of found that with Rajiv Vaip uh, and vice versa, I'm sure. Um so maybe I'll interview him in some future episode. <laughs> yes, yeah. you should. But yeah, uh having said that, the other thing that really comes through um in your stories is of course representation of South Indian culture, um especially sort of 
Tamil culture. It's very much there in Methvi and the Minotaur, and even with Nisha Small, it's based in Madurai. So, is this something you kind of consciously decide to do um, for a sort of for I I don't want to say for the sake of it, but more like you want to sort of represent, or is it just something that comes organically to you in terms of if I'm writing a story, it has to be in this manner and in this setting. I I think it's it's very difficult for me to remove that bit uh it's because it, it it's kind of in me like a lot of my experiences are you know growing up in Mogapir in mm. Chennai uh and being there and a lot of my friends uh you know were we speak Tamil basically and uh I I I I went to okay so so the long and short of it is that uh I I'd gone to this school called Spartan when I was younger, and uh, it's it's a school that you know like encourages you to just talk in English, and um, and you'd get fined ten bucks oh. if you if you speak Tamil. Yeah, like back in the day, I don't know if they're still doing that. So like uh, I hope we don't have some uh, uprising against Spartan right now because <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so this was it was it was a thing. You'd be fined if you speak in Tamil. And uh, what happened is that around eight standard, I got kicked out of Spartan for reasons, uh, and then I went to another school, the only school that would take me in uh, at that point, um, and uh, it was SBA model matriculation. So my friends there were completely different from my friend group in um, Spartan, basically, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I think all of us at that time were kind of lower middle class. Uh, I, I I still kind of remember the things that we would do. Like we would go to Spencer Plaza and just hang out there and just stand around and, you know, just go around in, in bikes and stuff. And uh, to say it plainly uh, or just so that anyone in, in, from Chennai is listening, they'll understand. It was very area boys culture. Mm. Uh, and that was sort of four of my most formidable years of my life, like mm-hmm. eight, nine, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, five. Um, and because of this, my brain is kind of wired to to go back to those experiences, to go back to those um, to those uh, memories. And sometimes I feel like you know, sometimes I just let this come through with my writing. Uh, okay. and it creates something wonderful. Uh, and other times I feel like I need to add something here uh, to make it to... to and, and when I do it, I, I kind of add it with a sense of irreverence towards English, if that makes sense. Because it's, it's, a, it's a very, if you get it, you will get it. If you yeah. don't, that's fine. You have other things going for you. You can just, you, you won't be thrown off the plot of the book, but... Um, but you just won't be privy to this joke. And mm. this weirdly comes from my intake of manga and also say a, a manga like One Piece where Oda is going around making a lot of Japanese puns and and humor for his uh, for people that speak Japanese that a lot of English readers are not going to get. Yeah. So I feel like it's okay to have these open secrets and to and to write for you know, uh, primarily an English audience or a pan-Indian audience. But it's nice to have these conscious little jokes and 
secrets and little bits added there that only an eclectic group can understand because mm. it enriches the experience and at the same time it removes our our um how do i put it it removes our reverence for the english language and it helps you decentralize this and uh, in a larger context i also believe that in 10 in 20 years or 30 years from now most content is going to move inward and become more regional specific and mm. the shift has already happened in yeah. youtube if you if you notice you'll see a lot of really good regional tamil youtube uh, content and it's inevitable that we go there and i kind of want my work to represent a who i am as a person and all of my memories but b i just feel that this is where i'm from and this is what i know and yeah. so i'm going to write this very long winded answer no that's really cool and you know more power to you because i found it really cool that you did that with the books with a sort of um i don't know if if fearlessness is the right word because there wasn't and the reason i say fearlessness is because there didn't seem to be any sort of thought of oh my god will i be alienating so many people by saying this or by mentioning these words or you know whatever but which i thought was really nice because i mean yeah regional content is great i mean internationally also if you look i think the way say of course japanese anime but also even korean content right like k dramas and stuff like they've kind of pretty much transcended language at this point and i think that's fine i think that's pretty much is the direction a lot of content yeah. and storytelling is taking today um so more power to you for doing that um but yeah what do you think has then changed in the whole like comic graphic novel scene say in india or south asia the reason i'm asking this is because i don't really or at least my understanding of it is i don't think it was necessarily taken seriously um say even 10 years ago and today in publishing you do see this sort of trend of where actually comics and graphic novels are making the sales they are sort of on an uprise trend um in fact if if i talk about tulika itself we've started a new imprint which is the graphics imprint which is about graphic novels wait what and, really yeah we have we've got three new books uh, we will talk about this later salamander if you want oh. to write a book for us <laughs> oh wow yeah there you go the rights and permissions person at work even on a podcast oh my god yeah but yeah so it is pretty much on an uprise so what is your like what is your take in terms of the way you've seen it sort of grow and change for some reason i can just envision like a graph in front of me like a, like <laughs> a like a stock ticker graph and you know like i'm i'm going to try to to look at give you an overview of like sure. all of it like like an all time high so if this is the comic graph so this is uh, x and y and over here right so this is when comics you know were were not a thing and over here we have the 70s and the mm-hmm. 80s and the 90s you'll see this huge uptick in the 70s 80s and 90s okay so this is where we have um a we have uh, like a, some amrchitra content and you know they've taken the market by storm and you have like a lot of regional players also producing comics but also if you remember uh uh i i, I don't know if if you would because you wouldn't have a need to sit outside on those benches in a in a in a salon because 
Sorry, I'm I'm kind of like mixing two things, but you know these barber shops that they had back ah, in the yeah. day in like yeah. 90s. I yeah. don't know if my like father goes, still goes. Got no, I never went. My father still goes. I think. No, no, I, I still go there. It's yeah. nice and neat. Uh, I I went there like two months ago when I was in Chennai, and I was like, I uh, I told my girlfriend that oh, this is where you get the best haircuts, and I came back with like cuts on my face. Oh my so, God. <laughs> yeah, the I I I think this time around the standard had dropped a bit. But anyway, point is like. Outside, on the benches, in the 90s or also the 80s, you'd find these comics there. These comics completely mm. in Tamil. Full Tamil comics. And they'd be of cowboys and, uh, you know, like spies and stuff like that. And this was because there was this whole syndication thing happening. And this whole translation moment where they would buy lesser-known comics from the West uh, and then just translate them, write Tamil text over them. And this was a huge thing. So at its heyday... You know, comics were really up there. And then Doordarshan came along, I think. So this mm. would be early 90s. And then there's a deep downward spiral. Uh, and since then, in if you if you take the larger, the, the larger scheme of things, and if this is the graph, I would say we are still here. You have certain upticks here and there, okay. but we are still almost flatlining. So okay. I think that's where we are uh, with comics today. With regards to... Um, to to is it taken seriously? I think in 2006 to 2008 there was a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is when with like say Kari and uh, and um, uh, Apupan's books, uh, the, the the Moonwood series, I guess, uh, had all come out, and there was this kind of reverence for graphic novels with uh, the bigger Indian publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, book sales were paltry, um, and you know, like we haven't touched those numbers, the '70s numbers. So this has sort of been an an on and off thing, where you know, like you would have like a small uptick in graphic novels, and then it'll die down again, and then you'll have another resurgence in like say 2015 or something. There was one, and then it'll die down again, and now we're having the 2020 one uh resurgence that will probably last two years so mm. let's like all milk this uh swiftly and um and then let's see um but i uh, what i do think is going to happen is is non-fiction comics are going to take off yeah um mm. and i think that is the space where if you if you're if you're, if you're a publisher looking to make money that's where you need to be mm-hmm. uh, and in terms of fiction comics or larger uh, pieces of work as comic books, um, they lead into film and adaptation rights. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been asked for Maitri and Minotaur. Uh, we've been approached a couple of times, but I think Rajiv and I at this moment have turned everything down because we want our story to be kind of set in. <laughs> like, <laughs> because it, it becomes weird if you, if you agree to... Um, a film adaptation of your comic uh, or your piece of work before it's actually done, done or before both of you know, like I know the ending. Yeah. I know book three, which I'm going to finish this weekend. And, um, but there's still a lot of moving parts and there's, there's a way for the movie to kind of undermine the comic. And right. I think there's a, it's a perfect case case study example for this also, which is Agent Winod. If you 
it I was actually th- I was actually thinking of Full Metal Alchemist because that's what happened. They did the show before the comic, the manga was oh, done. Oh really? Yeah, there's two versions of it. Oh yeah, yeah, Brotherhood and, and uh, yeah, and Full Metal yeah. Alchemist. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, I th- I think right now, but with with regards to anime, I, the right approach now. If you're a strong anime, uh, what you would do is that you would you just say no. You know what? Wait for me, and yeah. then like you'd have fillers. Over there. So, like, just like a random filler arc. In which case, it doesn't bother the integrity of the show, and people who like the characters just get get back and kind of yeah <laughs> do dumb things with them. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, so I think nonfiction comics. There's going to be a huge resurgence. Uh, I think we're going place. We're going to go places with that um, because it is uh, an easier content or an easier format to. To, for, for kids, uh, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, by which I mean your competition is TV, your competition are YouTube videos. Yeah. And as comics, you, you stand a better chance. Uh, and I think that's where it's going to go. Um, but I, 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 it seems like a no-brainer. Like comics should be a no-brainer and should do well. Uh, but again, you know, a lot of factors in, uh, in play here. It, it depends on marketing teams and how much they push these books um and yeah but no now we're sort of coming towards the end of this interview and we always end with these last two questions so the first one is um you know what are your aspirations what are you looking forward to in the near or even distant future this can be personal professional creative absolutely anything oh um professionally i think uh, i'm looking forward to the third Mike Lee and the Minotaur book, mm-hmm. as well as my Hashrat book. Um, okay. But I am also really looking forward uh, to trying to make more Mike Lee books. I, I want a bigger universe. And uh, Rajiv and I also have another uh, kind of book that is set in the same Mike Lee and the Minotaur world, but only takes place 2,000 years before. So it plays on the, the Kiladi civilization and uh, and we thought it would be fun to give this world a sense of history. Uh, so we have a story and uh, we have it um, written and uh, it's also illustrated. I think the the like it's not the final illustrations, but but it just needs to be colored essentially. So we have that as well. Uh, and um, I am also looking forward to writing. A, new series of uh, books and and, and uh, I want it to be completely prose. So I've only got like one or two chapters down at the moment. But uh, yeah, that's going to be a struggle. So I'm going to work on that. Will that be an Andrew Prashant book? No, it's going to be a C.G. Salmander book. Okay, so there's still time for an Andrew Prashant book. Yeah, there is an Andrew Prashant book. The script, it's all done. It's just sitting in oh, my okay. uh, thing because I, I haven't really sent it out yet. Oh, so. I was part of a, a fellowship thing where we worked on it, and uh, I think the book is complete. It's it's good to go out, um, but yeah, but I just need to uh, start sending it out. Hmm. Well, fingers crossed for that book yes. as well, and hopefully, Indeed. we will be talking about that as well in the future. Uh, but yeah, last question: uh, What is a piece of advice or learning you'd like to share? Um, again, this can be personal, professional, creative. Basically, something you've kind of experienced in life, and you just wish other people were more aware of. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, the the J Triple E and NEET exams are a good start. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm I'm being facetious. I think um, um, read your contracts well. Read them really well because <laughs> agreed. <laughs> don't just blindly sign contracts. This is one of my biggest pieces uh, of advice uh, have a very strong admin game uh, because you need to send out work you need to be on your emails uh, and you need to be responsive and uh, work ethic wise you know ultimately it just comes down to work ethic like if you're a publisher and your writer or your illustrator is not responding to you and it's just gone awol and you can't reach them for like say two weeks they get really panicky and, and they start freaking out man like the most veteran editors my work with start panicking and freaking out if like they haven't heard from an illustrator so i guess it just comes down to having a good work ethic and uh being like doing everything that you have to do for yourself professionally so that that side of you can take care of the creative um part of you but also be stubborn um like and oh yes or oh, biggest piece of advice uh not everything is is meant to be published uh you can mm-hmm. just write stuff and and just keep it with you um i think i've published about uh, 10 to 20% of what i've written and uh i also have a tendency to not look at something or just hide it away and and just say yeah this is not going to see the light of day uh so i i feel and i think i'm off that camp where not everything needs to be published or should be published and uh just have fun with what you're doing and um and be a good admin <laughs> that's literally it i love how this whole conversation this is supposed to be a podcast on creativity and we've just made this sound like the business of publishing yeah <laughs> right exactly yeah it's like this that's is not exactly what, what people is. are expecting from a from a cg salamander interview <laughs> Yeah, I know. Like I wish I could say that it's all about lying down in the grass and <laughs> looking at cows, but no. But yeah, that was a very dumb analogy. Please no. edit. Actually, you should keep that in just so that like just so that the listener knows what you had to go through or or the painstaking editing work that you had to like like do on this on this recording yeah so. it's already one and a half hours so i already know what my edit process is going to be like well at least i didn't like hurl profanities in between yeah so yeah <laughs> but on that note we have now come to the end of this interview thank you so much for being here andrew aka cg salamander it was great talking to you yes likewise it was lovely talking to you and uh it was lovely talking to all these listeners as well um so tune in for more <laughs> I, i i don't know how you end up and what's your end jingle and on that note this ends <laughs> goodbye see you next week see you next week listeners <laughs> bye <laughs> So that was my conversation with Andrew Prashant. I really enjoyed recording this episode and listening to his story. Closing this episode with excerpts from Andrew's book Nisha Small The Knot of Gold narrated by him. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you next week with a new guest and a new chronicle to share. Talk soon. Right foot to the left, left foot to the right, right foot to the left.
left foot to the right. If Jamie walked too fast, he would step on a bridesmaid's dress. If he walked too slowly, Appa and Priya would bump into him. And then the thali would slip out of his hands, fly into the air, and maybe get flushed down a toilet. Okay, there wasn't a toilet in sight. But Jamie was nervous. And when Jamie was nervous, he saw toilets. Toilets blossomed out of the floors. Commodes clung to the walls. Ancient Roman-style toilets replaced the benches on which the wedding guests would sit. The more nervous he got, the more toilets he saw. And the more toilets he saw, the more nervous he became. And the reason Jamie was so nervous was because of how superstitious his family was. The slightest sign of an omen and they'd cancel the wedding. All hell would break loose if he dropped the thali. Focus, Jamie, focus, he pinched himself. Right foot to the left, left foot to the right. After what felt like a march across the Sahara Desert, the cushion was finally out of his hands. Phew, nothing can go wrong now, he thought. Next chapter, Nisha Small. So, what happened? Priya's not married yet? Nisha's voice made Jamie jump. She'd crept up on him unnoticed, as she always did, as he was standing outside the church. He never could figure out how she did it. So what is it? What happened? First, my sister's engagement sari went missing. Then I bit off a chunk of sugarcane and had to rush to the dentist. Jamie opened his mouth to show Nisha his newly filled cavities. Then there was a fire. My parents started fighting, and I had to carry the golden thali to the priest without missing a single step. He paused to catch his breath and walk away from the church. And that's when the priest yelled that the thali was a fake, and suddenly the bride's and groom's families were at each other's throats. 